June 18th, 1815, Napoleon and his French army had pursued the Duke of Wellington and his English army into a forced battle just south of Brussels, Belgium, near a little village called Waterloo. And there had been torrential downpours the night prior, but Napoleon was anxious to make his attack before the English army received reinforcements from the Prussian army flanking from their rear to the east. So before pressing into attack, Napoleon, the former emperor and sovereign ruler of France, met his commanding officer with a strategy for attack. And at the end of their short meeting, Napoleon made what is now a famous comment. He said, at the end of the day, England will be at the feet of France, and Wellington will be the prisoner of Napoleon. To which his commanding officer responded, but we must not forget that man proposes and God disposes. And with this, the prideful, feisty, arrogant Napoleon, all five foot two inches of him, bristled and responded, I want you to understand, sir, that Napoleon proposes and Napoleon disposes. That morning, more rain and hail pounded the battlefield, making it impossible for the cavalry to advance with any speed or force. And by nightfall, in the words of novelist Victor Hugo, it was Napoleon who was the prisoner of Wellington, and France was at the feet of England. See, it was Napoleon's pride that was ultimately his downfall. Now, you and I are also in a battle of sorts, and it's a battle for who has control over our own lives. It's either us or God. You may be here this morning, and you don't even believe in God. Maybe your God is yourself, but I assure you, the battle you're facing is ultimately between who you want to be and who Creator God wants you to be. And you can fight that battle all the way to the grave, but ultimately every knee will bow to God the Father and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So my suggestion is that you do that now before you end up in eternity without hope. So the battle rages. It's our will versus God's will. It's our desires versus God's desires. It's our plan versus God's plan. So what man proposes, God disposes. What man resolves, God can dissolve. What man creates, God can evaporate. Rick Warren, in his widely read book, The Purpose Driven Life, started the entire book with this one phrase, it's not about you. Now, it's so often we are convinced it is, aren't we? And this is driven by the one thing that's in every heart of every person. It's the one thing that's at the root of every sin. It's the primary issue in all of our lives. And it just happens to be the subject of our message today. Today we're talking about pride. And this might be, just to be honest with you, one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. I was just telling Jason back in the green room, the problem is, is that when you speak on pride, everybody thinks that you're talking to them and you think you don't have it. And then when you speak on humility, everybody thinks you're talking to them and they think that you think you have it. But the truth is, <laughs> pride and humility are some of the hardest things to talk about because every one of us have the same issue. Because ultimately, every sin is born from this. So I want you to know as we get started in this journey that I'm preaching to myself as much as I am anybody else. And this is a very, very difficult passage for me. 
But the Bible is crystal clear about the dangers and the sin of pride. So many verses, let me just give you a few. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 15, 25, the first half says, the Lord will destroy the house of the proud. Proverbs 16, 5, everyone proud in his heart is an abomination to the Lord. And did you know that pride is number one on God's hate list? Proverbs 6, 16 says, there are six things that the Lord hates. Yes, seven that are an abomination to him. And the first thing on the list, a proud look. C.S. Lewis said in his incredible book, Mere Christianity, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It's the complete anti-God state of mind. And it's pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the beginning of time. See, Napoleon was convinced that the world resolved around him. And he quickly discovered that it does not. But there's a long list of other leaders throughout history who have felt the same way. I mean, you can name them. Alexander the Great, Henry VIII, Julius Caesar, Attila the Hun, Genghis Khan, Joseph Stalin, Hitler. And the list goes on and on and on. Oh, and then this this guy, King Nebuchadnezzar. We've been going to the book of Daniel. So I invite you now to turn to Daniel chapter 4. And we're going to read the personal testimony of a very prideful king. King Nebuchadnezzar, absolute monarch, absolute ruler in his day, one of the biggest and most amazing empires throughout all of history. Nebuchadnezzar, as you've already discovered, because we've uh, read a lot about him in the last few weeks, was a ruthless, ruthless king. And God used him as the one to seize Jerusalem in 605, and then again in 597, and then again in 587 B.C., So we've already heard a lot about King Nebuchadnezzar. And by the way, if I call him King Neb, it's just for short, all right, because it's a long word. In the past few weeks, we've learned a lot about him. So I don't want to take the time to reiterate it all. But one thing that strikes me about the life of King Nebuchadnezzar is the fact that the Bible states multiple times that all of his campaigns and all of his victories were actually orchestrated by God himself. Look at Jeremiah 22, verse 25. Jeremiah is warning the people from what God told him he was going to do. God said, I will give you into the hands of those who seek your life and into the hands of those who face your fear. The hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the hand of the Chaldeans. God was very, very clear about the fact that he was going to use Nebuchadnezzar to take the people of of Israel, the people of Judah, hostage, that he was going to use him to take over that region, that he was going to siege Jerusalem take them as captives. God warned his people multiple times. And it was all part of God's plan and God's punishment for his people. But here's the funny thing to me. Little does powerful King Nebuchadnezzar know that he's merely a puppet in the hands of an almighty God. Proverbs 21.1 reminds us, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. So we've seen now on multiple occasions how God has revealed himself to King Nebuchadnezzar in a powerful way through the dream in Daniel chapter 2 and then in this amazing story with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that we heard from Jonathan last week. I mean, crazy, amazing stuff. And God has been so, so bold about showing Nebuchadnezzar who he is. And yet we get to the end of chapter 3 in Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar still is not proclaiming God as his own. 
If you notice at the end of chapter 3, what he did is he said to all the people in, uh, in, in the Babylonian kingdom, you must not speak against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But he did not say that he was his God. And we certainly see no repentance from him until you get to Daniel chapter 4. And Daniel chapter 4 starts with an amazing little passage. It starts with praise. Nebuchadnezzar, this ruthless pagan king who is polytheistic, meaning he serves multiple gods, suddenly is praising the one and only true God. Look at, look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. To all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. Now it's personal. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. I'm sure when the people of the kingdom of Babylon, Babylon got this, I mean, can you just imagine? They were probably scratching their heads like, what? Is this the same guy? Same dude? It's kind of like me when I listen to Kanye West talk right now. I mean, really? That's awesome. It's amazing. Praise God. So what Nebuchadnezzar's doing is he's beginning his testimony. Kind of like if I was to stand up and say, hey guys, praise the Lord. <clears throat> Let me tell you what happened. And that's what happens in verse four. Nebuchadnezzar is now beginning to tell them why he's praising the Lord like he is. Look at verse four, Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Another dream. He had a dream in chapter two, and now he has another dream. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. That reminds me of a story about David, not uh, too far back in Scripture, doesn't it? He was at rest in his palace. Things were good. He was content. Life was easy. And that's typically when we lower our guard. Life is easy for Nebuchadnezzar. The whole world bows at his feet. Everybody. And yet, look at this. I saw a dream which made me afraid. What on earth does Nebuchadnezzar have to be afraid of? Everybody bows to him. I mean, if you say a bad word about him, you lose your head. What's he have to be afraid of? And yet, here's this dream, and it's made him terrified. And the thoughts on my bed and the visions of my head, sounds like Dr. Seuss, troubled me. Therefore, I issued a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon. And so for the next few verses, he just talks about how the fact he brought in all, the, all of his soothsayers, his magicians, his, his wise counsel, and all these guys. And they come in. And look here in verse 7. And it says, but they did not make known to me its interpretation. Now, once I read you the dream, you're going to understand. I think you'll agree with me. This dream is pretty easy to interpret. It's pretty, it's pretty clear cut. It's pretty obvious that this dream is about him. And notice that it doesn't say that the magicians and the wise people and the astrologers, the soothsayers, that they could not interpret the dream. It says they did not interpret the dream. I think it's because once he tells them the dream, they're all standing there going, I'm not going to tell them what this means. Do you want to tell them what this means? No. They don't want to tell them because they're going to lose their head. The dream's about him. And you're going to find out what that dream is in just a moment. And here's what kills me. Verse 8. But at last, Daniel came before me. He did this in chapter 2. He finally gets the right guy in front of him. After he's gone through all of his, you know, astrologers and all the stuff, he finally calls Daniel before him, who was named Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. He named him after his God, Bel, a pagan God. But that's the name he gave to Daniel. 
And then he says this about Daniel. In him is the spirit of the holy God. See, Nebuchadnezzar is wise to the fact that God is present. He just hasn't made him his God yet. He doesn't deny the presence of the holy God. He just hasn't bowed before him. And so I told the dream before him, and I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you, and no secret troubles you, explain to me the visions of my dream that I have seen and its interpretation. And then for the next several verses, he tells him his dream. Now, this is a very long passage of scripture. We don't have time to go through every verse. If we did, we'd be here till six o'clock tonight. But let me just tell you, in all my studies, this is a fascinating, fascinating chapter. Let me just pull out a few highlights. These were, here he says it again, the visions of my head while on my bed. I was looking and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. And he goes on for the next several verses to tell about the power and the might of this tree. How everything is nourished and everything is underneath the branches of this tree. It is an all-powerful tree and the beasts of the field are found under it. And the birds of the heavens dwell in its branches and all flesh is fed from it. And then in verse 13 he says, I saw in the visions of my head while on my bed. There was a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven. We believe that watcher to be an angel. And he cried and said thus, chop down the tree, cut off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts get out from under it and the birds from its branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump and the roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field Let it be wet with the dew of heaven. Now look at the subtle change in the wording. And let him graze with the beasts on the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from that of a man. Let him be given the heart of a beast. And let seven times pass over him. Did you notice that it switched from being about a tree to about a person? I don't doubt for one second that Nebuchadnezzar knew the interpret of his dream, the interpretation of his dream already. He knew this dream was about himself. So look at verse 18. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, who is Daniel, declare its interpretation, since all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy God is in you. And then Daniel, verse 19, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for a time. And his thoughts troubled him. Now, some people would say, now, what, now why would he worry about this dream that this king has had when it's obviously about the destruction of him? Why would Daniel be a, concerned about this? You would think he'd be rejoicing. But keep in mind, Daniel's been in this kingdom now since he was 10 years old. Daniel's now in his mid-40s, almost 50 years old at this time. He has served this king for 30 years. I really believe Daniel had compassion for this king. Daniel had a love for this king. He's been his regent. He's been his wise man. He's done all kinds of things for this king, and he has a relationship there. So when he hears what's going to happen to this king, he's blown away. He turns white as a ghost, and he doesn't know what to say because he's concerned for his king. And then the king spoke to him, and and I love the gentleness of this wording. He says, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. And then Daniel answers and said, my Lord, may the dream concern those who hate you and its interpretation concern your enemies. But that tree that you saw, and then for the next few verses, he explains it all over again, the trees that were lovely and the fruit that was abundant. It's you, O king, verse 22, 
You've grown and become strong, for your greatness has grown to the reaches, to the heavens, and your dominion to the, to the ends of the earth. But inasmuch as you saw this angel, this holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump and its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, as much as you saw this, and it's going to happen for seven times that you'll pass over you. You're going to be eating the grass of the field and, and grazing like an, like an ox, verse 25. As much as all this, look at verse 26. Your kingdom will be assured to you, but king, this is about you. You're going to lose your mind. This is about you, and, and you're going to keep your kingdom because God's going to hold it together for you, but this is about you. This tree is going to be cut down, and for seven years, you're not going to, have, you're going to be, not going to be in the right mind. And then verse 27 says this, so king, listen to me, and I really believe he has a voice of compassion when he's saying this, and he also has the courage to tell him the truth. He says, therefore, king, let me, let me give you some advice here. Let my advice be acceptable to you. Listen to this. Break off your sins now by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. And perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel's giving him fair warning. Look, king, now's your chance to repent. Please do this or you're going to lose your mind. Now, how can we make practical application to this story? Well, the first thing I want to, to tell you today is that the heart of God is patient. Let, let's look real quickly at the patient heart of God. Look what happens as we continue in this story. Verse 28, and all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar, and at the end of 12 months, 12 months, y'all, it's a year later since the dream. It's a year later since the warning of Daniel. It's a year later since the interpretation of the dream. He's been fair warned. Twelve months later, he's walking about the royal palace of Babylon. And the king is saying these words. Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? He's feeling pretty good about himself. See, for years now, God's revealed himself to King Nebuchadnezzar in all these different ways, and then God gives Nebuchadnezzar this crystal clear dream. He warns him to the prophet, gives him 12 more months, and he still doesn't repent. It's amazing to me the patience of God. And you know, if we peel back the layers of our own life and look back, aren't you thankful for the patience of God in your own life? all the things we've done, all the ways we've messed up, and yet God has been so patient with us. He gives us plenty of chances to humble ourselves before him, to worship him and to serve him. And aren't you thankful that he does? And yet so often we ignore his warnings, just like Nebuchadnezzar. We ignore his word. We ignore people speaking into our lives, and we seek him only when trouble comes. And we feel like we can do this on our own. We want to do everything in our way. And yet God knows the best way. And the reason we don't let God lead us is because of one thing, pride. Pride. Do you remember Muhammad Ali? Muhammad Ali was the greatest fighter of his era. He was originally named Cassius Clay, but 
He became the greatest boxer in the world, undisputed heavyweight champion three different times. He was well known for his highly publicized events, things like the rumble in the jungle, his fight against Joe Frazier. Uh, that was against George Foreman. And then the thriller in Manila. How many actually watched that fight? Anybody? Yeah, okay. So it was a big deal, right? Of course, he was known for his arrogance as well. He always referred to himself as the greatest of all time, right? And he would tell everybody that he can float like a what? Butterfly. Sting like a... Yeah. And he even referred to himself as Superman. There was a moment when him and his entourage got on an airplane, all sat in first class, and they sat down, and a flight attendant came up to him right as they were about to take off, and she noticed that uh, Muhammad Ali didn't have a seatbelt on. So she leaned down, and she said, Mr. Ali, would you be so kind to put on your seatbelt? To which Muhammad Ali looked at her and said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And I love this flight attendant. She leaned back down to him and she said, Superman don't need no airplane. <laughs> Buckle up. <laughs> I love it. I think I've had her on a few flights. But the fact is, every day of our lives, we come against a host of enemies and problems and circumstances, whether it be health or relationships or finances or whatever. We're up against a lot. And yet sometimes we approach life as though we are Superman. Or Wonder Woman. When reality is, we just need to put our seatbelt on and realize we just near, aren't near as tough and strong and as invincible as we think we are. We need to humble ourselves. And the day comes for all of us when we're rudely reminded that we are weak, frail, and vulnerable. But God is patient and God is kind. Now, you know what the last member of Muhammad Ali is in my mind? When he was standing there lighting the torch in the 1996 Atlanta Olympics and from his Parkinson's and from his diseases, he was struggling just to raise the torch. And then June 3rd, 2016, Superman passed away. But God is patient and God is kind. Psalm 145.8 reminds us, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and great and loving kindness. So here he is, King Nebuchadnezzar, walking the palace walls, admiring all his handiwork, very proud of all that he's accomplished. And you know what? He had a lot to be proud of. He did accomplish a lot. Babylon was an amazing place, a double-walled city. Each wall was at least, at least, and Herodotus, the Greek philosopher and the Greek historian said that the walls of Babylon were 387 feet high. That's one-third the size of the Empire State Building. Other historians say they were 90 feet tall. Regardless, they were big, really, really big walls. And they were 25 feet wide. 25 feet, that's at least the size of this section right here, in just width. And there was 40 feet between the walls, and there was two walls, an outer wall and an inner wall. Can you imagine? And Babylon is not some little village. We're not talking about a little town. We're talking a city the size, circumference-wise, of New Orleans. And so these walls were not just massive. They encircled the city for 56 miles. Can you imagine going to New Orleans and seeing two 90-foot-tall walls, 25-foot wide each, with a 300-foot moat around it, that's the width of a football field, 40 feet between each walls, and it's entirely surrounded, the city of New Orleans. That's amazing to me. Babylon was a huge city, 2 million in population. The walls had 260 towers around it, 160 feet between each tower. 
three magnificent palaces that Nebuchadnezzar all called his own. One of his throne rooms alone, one of them was 171 by 56 feet, just one of the rooms. He had the hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world that he has built for his wife, Amethyst. It's an amazing place, the Ishtar Gate, the Temple of Marduk, which had 60 million fired bricks in it that took to build. I mean, crazy stuff like that. And all of it was Nebuchadnezzar's. And every brick bore his seal. Excavations have shown that every brick carries the stamp that says these words. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, supporter of Agelsia and Ezekiah, exalted son of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Honestly, I'm surprised he even mentioned his dad. All the glory was for Nebuchadnezzar. All the riches were his. He shared it with no one. And now 12 months later, he's completely forgotten the warning of the dream, the warning of the prophet, and then it happens. But before we get to what happens, I gotta remind you of one, one thing. God is patient, but he will do whatever he needs to do to humble us. Nebuchadnezzar was a king, but he was still just a man. He was not Superman, and he was about to find out just how weak he really was. And I wonder, did he really recognize how proudful he was? Do you think he recognized it? I mean, a prideful spirit is like bad breath, you know. Everybody knows you have it except you. <laughs> and C.S. Lewis observed this, there's no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves than pride. And we need to remember the words of the old sage Benjamin Franklin, the greatest monarch on the proudest throne is still obliged to sit upon his own rear end. So aren't you thankful for the patience of God? Let's look here at the sovereign power of God. And while the word was still in the king's mouth, verse 31, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. That's present tense. And they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And they shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you. That's seven years. Until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whoever, whoever he wishes. Wow. And that very hour... While the words were still in his mouth, the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Insanity set in and he loses his ability to reason. And he actually develops a real, a very real condition that psychologists call boanthropy. He believes he's a cow. And so they moved him out into the pasture. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But it's true. I wasn't going to do that. I just had to do that. But it's true. He believes he's a cow. Now, I got I to gotta tell you, and please be aware that some mental illness is caused by issues you cannot control. We all understand that, right? But there are other mental illnesses that are brought on by our own negligence and our own stubborn pride. And this is the case with Nebuchadnezzar. And he's there for seven years grazing in the field like a, like a cow. And you may ask, how did the government function? Well, because there was Daniel, because there was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and all the, the wise men around him. And listen, in that day and age, a king was deity in the minds of the people. They're not gonna get rid of him, but they don't really know what to do with him. 
And the reason I believe that the seven times means seven years is because according to secular Babylonian historians, secular Babylonian historians, they show a seven-year period in the midst of Nebuchadnezzar's reign towards the end of his reign in which there were no decrees and no laws signed and no laws were changed. I mean, is the Bible accurate or what? So God warned him in a dream. God warned him through the prophet Daniel. God gave him 12 more months to repent. And finally, God said, enough is enough. And he kept his promise. And immediately, right in the middle of his words, Nebuchadnezzar is struck with Boanthropy. So God is patient, but God is also sovereign. And he is in charge, and he's in control, and nothing happens in the heart of man or on this earth without his knowledge and without his allowing it. We worship a sovereign God. And I got to tell you, man, I was listening and studying for this message, and I ran across something from Charles Swindoll because it was about the sovereignty of God. And he said, now listen, if you want to know if God has the right to proclaim himself as sovereignty, let me just read you the resume of what it takes to be a sovereign God. All right, so this is God's resume. He sees the end as clearly as the beginning. He has clear and unbiased perspective. He does not have a match or a rival on earth or in heaven. He entertains no fears, possesses no ignorance, has no needs, experiences no frustrations, and has no restrictions or limitations. God is sovereign because he always knows what is best and always pursues the goal that is consistent with the best, and he never makes a mistake in the process. He is invincible. He is immutable. God is omnipotent. God is omniscient. God is omnipresent, and he is self-sufficient. His judgments are unsearchable, his ways are unfathomable, and his will is unchangeable. And because God is sovereign, he's able to create rather than invent. He's able to direct rather than wish or hope. He controls rather than suggests. He guides. He does not guess. He fulfills instead of dreams. He is active, not passive, and he brings a perfect conclusion to all things rather than closing his eyes and just hoping for the best. We worship a sovereign and powerful God. And he's in control. Nothing ever surprises him. You've heard it says, has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurs to God? He is in control. That's why I'm not worried about the election next November. God knows already who's going to win. He knows everything. So you can trust him, even when he doesn't explain why. Sometimes you can't figure him out because his ways are above our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. And if you want a scriptural reference to that, look at Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. But part of the master plan of God is to bring us into alignment with his will and to become who he wants us to become. Job 42, 2 says, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. So sometimes he'll go to extremes to get our attention because in the end, he wants us to live lives wholly in line with his will for us. When we pray, he doesn't change. We change. When we read his word, his word stays the same, but it changes us. And when we worship him, he is blessed, and then he turns right around, and he blesses us. So God in his sovereign plan has made it very clear to us that if we'll serve him and if we'll worship him, he'll turn around and bless us. <laughs> Isn't that just amazing to you? I mean, he doesn't have to. He chooses to because he loves us and he wants nothing more than for us to love him back. So God is patient, but he'll do whatever he needs to do to humble us. God is sovereign, but he'll do whatever he needs to do for us to recognize this. Can I give you one more? Let's talk about the restoring hand of God. God is a redeeming God and will restore us 
if we humble ourselves before him. Best part of the story right here, verse 34. And at the end of the time, seven years, he's been out there (laughs) mooing like a cow. I, Nebuchadnezzar, at the end of the time, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. King Nebuchadnezzar had finally been broken. And it's when we release our pride and when we allow God to break us that he will use us. God uses broken vessels. Look at this. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? And at the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and the nobles, they resorted back to me. I was restored to my kingdom and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, King Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice and those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. That is a scary verse to me. But for the first time, Nebuchadnezzar truly worships the one and only true God. God has redeemed him. God has rescued him. And God has restored his soul. You see, it's the prideful heart that has the worship problem. We're all created to worship something. But most of Neb's life, he's been worshiping himself, his accomplishments, his money. What about you? God in his patience restored King Neb. But let me tell you, he can restore you also. Remember, the battle you're facing is ultimately between who you want to be or who God wants you to be. And I can assure you of this one thing, folks. God wants you to be the best you that you can be even more than you want to be the best you that you can be. It's true. So we go through this battle with almost every decision we make Is it about me or is it about him? And it seems like everything we do is about either making us feel better or look better. And all the marketing campaigns around us are about the same thing, aren't they? Listen to what some of them say. They say, I bet you can name, I bet you can even name the progress. Have it your way. It's everywhere you want to be. How do you spell relief? Be all that you can be. Because you're worth it. You're in good hands. Proud as a peacock. Oh, what a feeling. How about this one? You're going to like the way you look. I guarantee it. See, everything the world has to offer feeds from those two thoughts. Will it make me look better or will it make me feel better? And you go to look at every magazine counter that you want to look at, and most every magazine and every article in every magazine is about four things. Money, sex, power, and things. Those are the four great lures of the world. So if you're going to get caught or snared in a life of pride or selfishness or addiction or sin, it's going to be in probably one of these four categories. And Satan knows this. And he knows exactly where you're weak. He knows exactly how to exploit that weakness. And he'll do it from a thousand different ways and in a thousand different angles until we eventually fall. And then we come up empty every time. And you can look at the long list of all the famous people you know that have gained the entire world and yet died in misery. Michael Jackson, Marilyn Monroe, Robin Williams, Elvis Presley, Howard Hughes, Phil Hartman, Heath Ledger, Amy Winehouse. The list is long, 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 long. 
And these people seemingly had everything the world had to offer and yet died tragic and premature death because they couldn't fill this void that only God can fill. They're trying to fill it themselves. So whether it's out of desperation or greed or or lust or whatever, ultimately all of this is driven by pride. And I sat up there and I baptized that young man, Christopher Henderson. And he told me how the Elam home had changed his life. Because you see, for years he was trying to fill the void with alcohol, with a substance, with something. And I'm standing there baptizing him and his, and his precious wife is over there weeping. And I looked at her and I said, you got a new husband, don't you? And she said, I've been praying for this for years. God is the only one who can fill the void in your life. So none of us can outshine or outglow our own mortality. Not King Nebuchadnezzar, not Napoleon, none of us. It's though we're like these little glow worms. I don't know if you've ever heard of glow worms, but <laughs> they're about this big. And after they hatch, they live for two days and they shine real bright. And in those two days, they actually mate and have offspring and have a career and everything else. It's a, it's a really wild weekend, I'll tell you that. But in two days, they're done. Their life is fleeting. And, and they have this shining moment, but then they're finished. Our lives are fleeting like that. It's, it's like Isaiah put it, all flesh is like grass, and the grass withers and the grass fades. Our lives are like a blip on the radar in light of eternity. And so while it could be said that we are short-lived like glowworms and withering grass, there's one thing that sets us apart. We have a soul. And our souls need God. So will you, life, will you live your life for yourself or something greater? You were created for more than just a self-centered, selfish life. Life is found when you humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and begin to live for him. God can restore you. God can change you. God can use you. You do have a purpose. Your purpose is not to live your life for yourself. Your purpose is to surrender your life to Christ. And you know what he makes you then? You see, he adopts you as his very own and he makes you a child of the king. You become part of the royal family of God. You become his very own and you are bought with the price of the blood of his precious son. We're all sinners in need of the saving grace of God. So we're not glowworms. Truth is, we're probably just worms. But we're worms with a soul. And we are loved so much by God that he sent his only son to die for us. Alas, and did my Savior bleed? And did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? At the cross at the cross where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight. And now <laughs> I'm happy all the day. Can I just give you the words of James? God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Let me give you the words of Jesus. <laughs> For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world 
and loses his soul. Will you bow your heads with me, please? We worship a patient God. We worship a sovereign God. We worship a restoring and redeeming God. And I don't know where you are today. Maybe you feel like you're right on the edge. You've pushed it long enough. And God has been patient for you, but you've had the warnings. And you haven't listened. And you know as well as Nebuchadnezzar did that you're right on the edge. You're right on the edge of facing some serious trouble in your life simply because of your selfishness and pride. If that's you, can I give you the warning of Daniel? Stop now. Humble yourself. Stop sinning. Turn to him. He is patient and he is loving and he is kind and he stands before you with the open arms of the cross and wants to give you life. He wants to restore you. Is that you? Maybe you've been running from God your whole life and there's an emptiness in your soul and you tried every which way to fill it. Your soul is hungry for one thing and there's only one thing that can fill it. It's the love and the grace and the power of God. Is that you? If it is, then I want you to come to this altar, take a pastor by the hand and simply say, man, I'm empty. I need Jesus. That's all you gotta say. And then there are those in this room and you're like me. God has saved you. Life is good. But we're just so stinking prideful about everything. Everything's about us. And we rarely make a decision that's completely bent towards pleasing God or pleasing somebody else alone. If that's you, man, you know, the best thing we can do is do exactly what James tells us. Humble yourself in the sight of God and then let him lift you up. (laughs) Let's stand together. We will not take long with this invitation, but if you want to come, if you need to come, then come now. Let's humble ourselves before him and sing this great old hymn of praise. We want to take this opportunity to thank you for joining us here today. You know, at Thomas Road Baptist Church, since our very beginning, back in 1956, we've been about one thing and one thing only, and that is to bring the message of hope that comes through Jesus Christ to the world. And today, my friends, we recognize we live in a world that's messed up. We live in a world that's full of division and conflict and pain and sorrow. But Jesus came to this world not to bring division and sorrow, but to bring joy, to bring peace, to bring hope. And today, that's the message that we want to share with you. And if you're watching this and you've never had the opportunity of of connecting with him at that level, of understanding what it is that Jesus came to do, then I encourage you and I want to let you know the greatest news you'll ever hear. And that's this, God loves you. He loves you with an everlasting love. In fact, he gave his only son, Jesus, to come to this earth to die on the cross, to pay for your sins and for my sins, to do for us what we never could do for ourselves. What an amazing gift that really is. God loves you. Christ died for you. 
But three days later, he rose again. And when he came out of that grave, he gives us victory over sin, over Satan, over the grave. He gives us the hope for eternity. But according to God's word, it's very clear. What we must do is believe. We must believe that Jesus is the Son of God. We must believe that He died and that He rose again. And if we do that, according to Romans 10, 13, anyone, that means you, it means me, it means every person that has ever lived, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so I encourage you today to recognize that hope that comes through Jesus. And if you've never trusted Him as your Lord and Savior, do so today, believing that He is who He said He is, that He did what He said that He did, calling on his name, and it'll change everything. That is the message that we share. It's a message that we want to take to the entire world. And today I would encourage you to connect with us, maybe even financially through a gift. You can help us to take this message around the world. I encourage you today to stand with us as we stand with truth, as we stand with hope, to let the world know God loves. 